what's going on? Welcome to a Tuesday edition of The People's Show. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. If you want to chime in, 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. I'm Bick, Dom, and Costa behind the glass, but it's been a while, so I know you don't want to hear from us. Uh, we haven't heard from longtime NHLer, former Vancouver Canuck, Yannick Hansen in some time. And as always, Yannick Hansen. Brought to you by Magnuson Auto Group, Metro Ford, Port Coquitlam, and Magnuson Ford and Abbotsford on both sides of the Fraser to serve you. So let's get to Yannick. Uh, how are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Good to be back. Yeah, nice little uh, trip away uh, in uh, March and uh, away from the rain here in Vancouver. But it's been busy, obviously, for the Canucks playing all these games. And, you know, even when it's the end of the season and we're waiting for the end of uh, you know the, the regular season and start talking to all the players and end of season, you, you think it's going to be a quiet time, but but it's nonstop drama for the Vancouver Canucks right now. Uh, I, I, I imagine you saw it over the weekend as well. Uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek comments from Bo Horvat uh, talking about the atmosphere that he's seeing in New York uh, right now. Uh, what did you make of the whole thing that happened uh, over the weekend with Horvat? Yeah, he he strikes me as somebody who's frustrated, obviously, with uh, with the situation being in uh, all these things. Um, uh, the way it ended here, probably. Um, so there's no question; it's a, it's a stab at at Vancouver. He kind of backpedaled a little bit, which is wise. I mean, it wasn't it didn't sound nice in any way when he said it, and I get it. He's emotional at that point; he just won a big game, um, but but it, it it didn't come out very well especially considered he's such a big part of the team that was here that didn't do anything for so many years. Um, so you can who and ha all you want at the, the fans. Um, but in the end, if your team performs, if you're in a playoff spot, there's, there's no issue. But when the product on the ice is what it is, the fans pay and, and they're allowed to air their grievances if they will sometimes you you can debate whether or not it's too much jersey toss banner flying and all these things um but but again they're paying for a product and they're not getting what they're promised if you will um so as a player especially when when you're the one that are are, are pulling the reins if you will you got to be very careful with with how you air your your thoughts on what you think of how the fans react to you um, like I said, you, you're you're the one that are determining how they act. I played for for the Canucks fans, and and they were very loud and very good when we were winning. There's no question about that. It, it's a demanding fan base as well. The media here is, is very demanding as well. Um, the thing is, Bo has never played here when there was any kind of success, so he hasn't really seen or experienced this. I know he he were in the playoff with the first year with us when. Um, um, when we lost to Calgary there, um, but but again the the playoff bubble bubble that that wasn't playoff. There were no fans involved, so so he's never seen it. Again, he's never taken a team here in Vancouver there. So again, some frustration I feel on his part um, probably. Um, and again, I think I I, I said this um, right when he got traded too. Um, maybe not the best situation for him right now personally. Uh, I mean, we look at his numbers. They aren't they aren't exactly screaming back uh, eight and a half million. Um, I don't know that that's where the frustration part maybe comes in. 
Um, he, he had a good thing going here in Vancouver, and I'm sure he would have loved to have stayed if they would have paid him what he wanted. Um, uh, so again, it's uh, it's always tough when you when you see stuff like that coming out afterwards. I mean, you should uh, wash your hands and separate, um, and then leave it at that. Uh, these little jabs, stabs, um, they, they they don't do anybody anything good. What was that process like for you? Because obviously, like you. you poured it out for the Vancouver Canucks and the fans obviously reciprocated towards you and you know that process we've talked about the, the trade before but that process of trying to move beyond Vancouver you know what helped you for that I didn't I I was stuck in uh, reminiscing all the time going home and I wish we were back uh, playing in the in the Orca jersey and I had a great situation in San Jose like I, I got plumped right down next to Pavelski and Jumbo and got a chance to to play on that line so everything was there for me to succeed. It just didn't happen. Uh, and again, um, for whatever reason, I, I can't explain. Um, so, so again, after you kind of get, get uh, acclimatized uh, and everything, and then, okay, this is not what I had hoped it to be. Um, again, like I said, it was a great situation for me. The team was right where I wanted the team to be. They had been in the Stanley Cup final the the year before so it was a tremendous team that that had potential to to really do something again which i long for again like i said uh, i had a prefer to stay in vancouver but but when they didn't want me anymore um next best thing is to go to a team that has potential to win um, and like i said it didn't work out that way but at least in the beginning, it was there. I had every opportunity to, to make it happen. Um, again, onus is on, on the player here to make it happen again, uh, and I didn't. Um, so, again, there, there's no hard feelings there. Uh, but, again, it, it's obviously sour when thinking back as to how it was in Vancouver right up till the end and, and then kind of just fell off a cliff a little bit. From a personal level, yeah, okay, that's difficult. But were you able to focus on San Jose hockey? Because that's the thing I do wonder about. Because, look, we, we never heard comments like this from you in San Jose, at, at least this this fresh. Um, I, I One thing I just wonder about, it's like clearly, like I, I can understand being frustrated that you want to be in Vancouver, but now you're in a playoff chase with the Islanders. Should you be making comments about Vancouver? And I just wonder from a player's mindset, like if you're focused on something that's a grudge or, or you're being frustrated uh, from a situation, you're in the middle of a playoff chase too. Yeah, and that's, for for me that that wasn't an issue. Um, like I said, I got plucked right in, and I, if I remember correctly, like we were we were at the top of the division and everything. So it, it was more of a matter of of finding out who we were playing at that point in the playoffs. Um, and again, obviously, I followed Vancouver um, and stuff like that. But um, no, there were there weren't any things where I, I feel like I, I needed to take a a jab at at people, at least not in in public, maybe more so behind closed doors. Um, that that's what I mean. That you want to keep that uh, you want to keep that at a at a minimum. Uh, again, it doesn't serve anybody anything good um, throwing those stones. Um, it can only come back at you. Um, and again, he's still gonna have to come and play in Vancouver uh, on the road. I, I don't know how the reception is gonna be now. I mean, they they, they love them here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's stuff like that that kind of irks people a little bit because why why are you saying this? I mean, yeah, we we, um, we were booing and and jerseys were being thrown, but you your cap team, your captain of this team, team spends to the cap, and you're not even close to a playoff spot. What what do you expect people to do? That that's kind of my my point in this. 
fans, I, I'm sure 100% he's right. The Islanders fans right now after that game were many times better than, than what he's experienced in Vancouver. But that is because of where the team is. Uh, and that, again, falls back on the player. Um, not just Bo, of course. It falls back on the players. That That's why you got to be careful with, with making those jabs at especially the, the paying customer because, again, they uh, they hold all, all the rights and what they want to do, obviously, within expectations. Um, it's different if if he came out and take a, took a stab at uh, at Alvin or, or Rutherford for, for how it played out down the line, if he felt like he was mistreated there. That I could completely understand if he was pissed about that. Um, but but the other part is, um, yeah, you got to keep your mouth closed about that. You know the the comment we've gotten a lot from fans here recently is, you know this this feels reminiscent to you know Kessler and you obviously would have been in the room. Like, what was the feelings from the players in the room when Ryan left, and what was the feeling then of that anticipation for the next game? Well, it, it was obviously something that we knew was was in the making. Mm-hmm. It, it took a long time, but but again, it, it sucked because it made our team worse right away. Um, there's no way you're going to bring in a player who can do what he does. Um, and when a player like that want to go out, you know, yeah, you might get some pieces back, um, but, but those pieces down the line, they might turn into something. I mean, Jaron McCann looked pretty, pretty good right now. He was one of those pieces. Um, but that season right after he left, um, our team is not better for it. Um, uh, and it's the same when Lou left. Like uh, right away, our, our team is, is not a better team. So, so it kind of, it's a little bit frustrating because you keep want to win. You believe in yourself. You believe in your team. Um, but, but these players, these different makers that are leaving, uh, are, are leaving some some big holes in the lineup. Talking to Yannick Hanson as we do every Tuesday now here on the People's Show. Uh, so what do you think that first game back will feel like all of a sudden? Because now, now there's intrigue. When the schedule comes out, everyone's going to look at, okay, when do the Islanders come to Rogers Arena? Yeah, that, that's the thing. Uh, hopefully for him it, it's not until the end of the year, and, and you can hope people maybe forgot, but nobody's going to let him forget that one. Um, again, and, and you don't know, they might not make the playoff now. Uh, I, I mean, they lost um, – they lost their opportunity to decide it themselves here in the last game. Um, so, so, so that that's another one, another wrinkle in that one. Dude. You gotta you gotta be careful with what you say um, because it can come back to haunt you right away. Um, I'm expecting them maybe to like instead of cheering him like they would have, um, that there might be some booze coming his, his way now instead. Was that summer helpful for you? Because obviously you were in San Jose for two years, and you know Bose signed a contract, so he's going to be in Long Island for a while. Is that first summer to, to kind of reset? Okay, look, I was in Vancouver, came here, playoff push, and was that summer helpful for you? Yeah, it, it was. It was lots better to get back there after after the summer. I mean, you know everybody, you get acclimatized, you, you find your where you're going to be living. You're not just pumping and bumping into a hotel and kind of shifting around like that. Your family's coming with you, all these things. It's a lot harder for Bo. I mean, he's moving coast to coast where I just went uh, a little bit further down south. So it's a little bit easier in that sense. Um, so to no, no question, it, it's not easy to get moved in season. Um, it takes a while to, to get used to everything. Uh, so the summers will, will probably do him wonders in terms of, of getting settled, um, not so much in the dressing room or on the ice, but but everything else that goes within being a, a person living in a completely different city. 
as we get ready for this final week, and we'll touch on some of the things that we've you know, seen on the ice and, and, and whatnot, but you know, we're getting ready for exit meetings uh, coming up this weekend. What was a big one for you like when you were starting to grow into your career? Because obviously there's a lot of young players and the coaching staff over the past month is really focused on, hey, the summer's going to be huge for some of these players. What was a message during one of those exit meetings that was big for you? There, there's a couple of them, especially early, early on, where they're like they're they're basically telling you that that you're penciled in. Uh, don't 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 f it up. Uh, make sure you you come back better, hungrier, bigger, stronger, faster, um, and and then you're you're here for good. Uh, but it's up to yourself. Um, and once you get told that, you're like, okay, um, I, I'm I'm gonna bear down in in the in the gym instead of of doing other stuff maybe and. Uh, again, this is uh, this might be be something we can do long term, and it's not just a matter of coming up here, playing a couple of games, and feeling like I'm um, I'm a new kid that doesn't belong here. But but you can make a home here, and then as you get later on in your career, the exit meetings turns a little bit into more about the team and what needs to happen, what can happen, um, take on bigger roles in the dressing room, and all these things. Uh, but but early on those those messages you you gotta you gotta take them with you and um, a lot of times you get some some tidbits in there some helps um, uh, constructive criticism some hard truths whatever it is um, change your game become somebody else if you wanna want a career here um, you name it um, uh, make sure you you read between the lines uh, oftentimes they are needing for that because they're very explicit as to what they want. Um, then it then it's up to you to um, to deliver. How like just take us through those meetings then like when when they talk about hey getting bigger stronger faster like what was the the emphasis and and it, essentially like what, was there a plan put forward to you and how much did you have to follow it? Um, in Vancouver, we always got uh, workouts. Well, I, I happened to train with Glenn Carnegie, who was the mm-hmm. um, uh, strength and conditioning coach for us for me. So it wasn't like I got anything get getting home with me uh, I trained with him so I'm assuming he got it that way around or whatever way it, it worked out so I, I never got a plan but my early early years we'd give a, get a big folder a big book and it was basically every day was was planned out through the entire summer um, in terms of our workout schedule and then you could just follow it obviously you needed the facilities mm-hmm. and these things but but then it was uh, yeah day one to day whatever it was 120 when we were back in Vancouver um, that you could follow if that were you were wanting and again there was the the, the camps that uh, that we showed up for the training camps and we always had these tests that uh, you'd have to um, to kind of get into a close to and again obviously it's it's a way to make sure the guys are working out um, you're not allowed to keep tap on on guys in the off season and tell them what to do and, and what they should do no you can make suggestions and that's where these access meeting the suggestion comes in and doing mm-hmm. this in quotation because they're not really suggestions but it is like if you want this like this is what you have to do um so all the all the the things you need in order to be successful are there information uh plans guidance uh, anything you want it's up to you to to make use of it was there any uh, f- like frequency of contact from coaches during the off season about checking in? We had to send uh, test scores back to Roger once a month, but again, even that was was questionable because that's keeping taps on us. But, but right. I mean, it was uh, we had our our bike test, our uh, our strength test, um, 
that we had, I want to say, was once a month, and then he just wanted the numbers. Um, and again, there were, it was just a matter of me uh, uh, writing two lines in an email, and this is how much I did in my bench press. This is how much I did on my squatting. This is my sit-ups. This is my this is my uh, my my bike score, and off it goes. Um, and again, I could write anything I wanted there, um, but like I said, one cam showed up or happened these were the tests we were doing. And if your test scores are obviously off of these ones, then okay, this guy didn't do anything in the summer. So why, why should we give him a chance in camp? So again, it, it is all, you, you get what you put into it. Um, and if you don't put anything into it, you have a good summer, you, you wakeboard on the lake, you have beers with the buddies and uh, you golf and you forget about the gym. Well, when you show up for camp, um, your spot is most likely going to be gone. Did you like that? Uh, for, you know, for the exit meetings, you're talking about, you know, penciled in did you like having that hunger or was it better later in your career when you kind of knew okay i'm going to be here i'm in concrete uh i, I know well, exactly it, where I'm it, gonna be. it's not nice to be on the bubble i can tell you that much right. i was on the bubble for many not many but but my first three or four uh camps i want to say and it is nice showing up for camp and knowing you're you got a spot and you can kind of go a little bit easier so that first practice i don't have to go out and run 100 miles an hour and risk tearing a joint groin or or getting hurt hitting somebody or getting into a fight that was happening early on as well that wasn't so much what i was doing um but but i was definitely skating 100 miles an hour right off the bat um and again i got hurt from that too a couple times in camp early on um so it, it is nicer when you can kind of slowly get into the rhythm and then uh, ramp it up as as we get closer to to um, to the actual season um, and again the whole comfortability with okay we go in we land in Vancouver here in uh, beginning of September we start looking for a place to to stay and all these things you don't have to worry about living in a hotel for uh is it one week one month is it five months sometimes guys were staying at sudden place um because they were never told to get a place they weren't really sure um so no for sure it's nice to to know you're going to be there Actually, I do want to ask about too. You know the the practices you mentioned. You're going hard at training camp when you're starting out in your career. But you know the the peak eras of of those teams there, right? From from 2008 to to 2015. You know how hard were the practices daily? Like not morning skates, just in general. How hard did you guys push yourself when in a controlled environment of hey, we're just here practicing today? Were were those practices more difficult than early in your career and later? Uh, no, it we we it's it was right off, but it but it wasn't like it was consistent throughout the season. It was when we knew it was time to do it, then you you'd ramp up that intensity. Um, if it needed be, we weren't playing as well. We were getting lucky. We we're winning the game. We wouldn't. Um, then leadership group knew that okay, now now is the time to dial it up a little bit. And then the fun and games went away. The 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 joking on the ice went away, and still it was head down and. And you could feel it almost showing up sometimes in practice that, okay, today is we're not here for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, guys were, were finishing their checks a little bit harder. You were getting cross-checked in front of the net. Um, you weren't uh, dipsy-doodling trying to tiptoe around a demon. No, you were, you were skating hard down the wing and you are burying a puck or passing it across hard. Um, these things. So it was more so policing the, the, the team, the dressing room, um and then again then you could ramp up when need be um but but for sure the the early camps that uh, we did before uh, it got toned down a lot i mean we started with rookie camp for five or six days uh, into prospect camp for four or five days 
before Ming camp even started. And those um, rookie camp and prospect camps were like, like that was war. Um, guys were fighting each other and hitting like it was uh, playoffs because it was how you made it to the next step. So by the time main camp rolled around and those exhibition games, like you'd been playing like it was, it was, it was April and May for, for 10, 12 days. Um, but just trying to fight your way through uh, those 50, 60, 70 players that showed up through those two camps and in order to just make it through main camp or to main camp. Because we've been talking so much about you know changing the mentality of this culture of this of this team and getting ready for next season, obviously. And the point I've been making is it starts within, not just oh hey, where I'm going to be more competitive this year. It starts collectively as a group in environments that you can control, like a practice. If you start seeing more of that, will it translate to the ice? Is that fair? You hope so, because you use the old mantra that uh, practice like you play. Um, and it is very hard unless you have that switch uh, as a team that can just turn it on. Um, and it's, it's it does, not a lot of team have it, uh, obviously. Um, so unless you can do that, then you can allow yourself to be a little bit more loose. Otherwise, it has to be... Uh, it has to be business day in, day out uh, uh, until you get to a point where your skill, your systems, your um, superiority uh, shines through and you can win games on 85%, if you will. Otherwise, you have to be 100%. In order to be 100%, well, you have to be like that uh, the entire time. And I say this as well, that that is impossible to do as well. So you have to be able to find a way where you can win these games where you're not going... Uh, Metal to the pedal, uh, pedal to metal, pedal to the metal, if you will, because um, you can't do that for 82 games. Um, but again, it's got to start somewhere. When those practices, you know, mid to early in your career started ramping up, could you feel the growth? Or, or reflecting back now, do you say, man, like when that started to pick up, is when I really started to grow as a player? Well, it just it tra- it made the games easier. Right. We, we like when we practiced, and again, it wasn't like I said, it wasn't every single practice, but like when it was just it just carried over. So exactly how we 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 went about practices, that was how we played our games, and then this grind that the season is, it just kind of turned into a little more uh, relaxing environment because our grind was norm all of a sudden. So the way we practiced, the harder we practiced, well, the games became that much more easier to play and we were winning games easy and you're just kind of breezing through and we put together these four, five, six uh, win streaks, then you lose a cut, one or two and then you're right back doing it again. Um, so you don't get that mental fatigue of, oh, we got to win this game tomorrow because these guys are right behind us or we need to move up here. Um, it just became the norm as to how we, we practiced and it carried over and, and it made the seasons a little bit easier, if you will. Obviously, we were in a different scenario too with uh, a little bit of an easier division, especially for some years. Um, but but again, you, you can't stress that enough that, that you practice like you play. Um, and it's very hard to turn that switch on if you aren't doing it consistently. Uh, I do want to get one more thing from you, and you know, look, I know you've been away, so you're not watching all the games. But there's been some, you know, praise for a new defenseman, young player coming up from college, Akita Hirose. And I, I, not comparing him to Tanev, but just when when Tanev arrived, like, what was the first thing that stood out to you guys? Of like, okay, this guy can play at this level. Was there a trait? What was it that that you know, kind of stood out to you? And things that no, people could the, be looking the, the, for. The first thing that stood out was this guy's going to get killed. Uh, he, he was skin and bone. I was like, he's going to get murdered the first time we play. Um, he was so skinny. I like, And 
again, we, we could see obviously from practice that he could skate and all these things and move the puck. Um, but that was sheer fear for him because he was so little. Um, and I know he got dropped in in the playoffs there and he played a little bit. Um, but again, it's hard to form an opinion on a player mm-hmm. there because there's so many other things going on. Um, but but that first season, you're kind of, okay, he just bounces right back. Uh, I remember him getting run by Jordan Tutu in Detroit. And I, again, looked down, I was like, okay, he's going to leave on a stretcher here. Bounce right back up, swing, swings his hair around and, and keeps going. Um, so the the fearlessness, because he watched so much smaller. And again, when, when forwards see that, it's like licking your chops. You know, you're going to run this guy, it's going to feel good. And so many guys took so many runs at him. Um, and he just bounced up right back up, made the easy play, got out. Obviously, later on in his career here, he's getting more injured now, and that's what, what tends to happen. Um, but, but again, the, the the fearlessness, because like I said, he, he was hunted, especially early, um, of him going back for pucks was, was really, really impressive. Uh, Yannick, we could do this for hours, but appreciate it. Uh, glad you're back, and uh, hope everything's good, and we'll connect pretty soon here. Sounds good. Take care. Lots of good stuff there from Yannick Hansen, longtime NHLer, former Vancouver Canuck, as he joins us every Tuesday on The People Show, brought to you by Magnuson Auto Group, Metro Ford, Port Coquitlam, and Magnuson Ford in Abbotsford on both sides of the Fraser to serve you. All right, we got to go to break. Uh, keep getting your reaction into 650-650. On the other side, we'll talk to Mark Schofield uh, from SB Nation and your takes for free takes on the other side as well here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. The most comprehensive Canucks coverage in the city. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the People's Show, coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Uh, get your thoughts in 650-650. We'll read them on the other side. Also get to free takes coming up in just a bit. But let's connect with our guy from SB Nation, QB analyst, NFL writer, days away from the NFL draft. It's Mark Schofield. Mark, how's it going? I'm doing well, Vic. It is great to be back. Had a little bit of R&R with the family last week, so it was nice to you know, going on a little trip with the kids and everybody for spring break, but we're back at it. We're inside three weeks to the draft, and the takes are flying on the timeline. Let's just put it down. Oh, way. yeah. We're excited to dive in today. I, I want to hit pause on all the QB stuff for the draft because, you know, we, we've kind of talked after Combine, Stroud and Richardson and everyone, and, and now we're in this dead spot, and it's a cool chance for us to look at all the other things uh, across the draft. And also – you know, another position that influences the quarterback, the wide receiver, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about this wide receiver class. And, you know, so much when years past, we've we've talked about wide receivers and th- there's this been this commentary of, you know, a guy who's maybe not a true outside guy and, and a dominant player. Years ago, it would have been, oh, he'll probably project as a slot player. And now we're getting to the stage, and I think you know where I'm going with this with a player, is slot is so important, but can you make it the foundation of your offense? I think it you know, kind of depends on the player, on the offense. Um, you know, a recent example is probably Justin Jefferson in the sense that, you know, coming out of LSU, particularly that 19 season where, you know, LSU won a title, 
most of his production was out of the slot, and there was a question whether he could translate to the next NFL, to the next level, or if he's a slot receiver only. You know, you could find examples of the previous year where he's operating on the outside, but he goes to a team in Minnesota that maybe they play a little bit more twelve personnel, and so it's not so much you're you're still sort of in that slot position, but you know, on the field, but you're reduced to the formation. You're not really in the slot. You're more of an outside receiver, a Z, a flanker, but you're still playing inside, so you have the benefits of that two-way release. And so there are ways that you could sort of get around that. And the reason why this discussion is important is because, you know, in this draft class, most of the top receivers, whether it's a JSN, you know, whether it's a Zay Flowers, Jordan Addison, you know, even in a, a, a similar sense, perhaps one of the tight ends in mm-hmm. Dalton Kincaid, they do some of their best work out of the slot. And so you're wondering, you know, when you start thinking about this receiving class in particular and how they're going to, how that position will unfold on the first night of the draft, do we see just a handful of receivers in the first round because of that? You know, because when you're talking about playing on that area of the field, whether as a true slot receiver or you know, an outside boundary receiver for that reduced split, you get the benefit of what we call that two-way go, right? You can release inside, you can release outside. It's not like playing outside on the boundary as, an, as a true X-type receiver where you've got that sideline against you, and so you might have to release one way or the other, but you've got outside corners that are good at sort of taking that away from you. That benefit of the two-way go makes life a little bit easier, which means it's not as critical a skill set to find. And so... That's going to be the interest and then that plays out with this receiver class is because they're more sort of slot types. Do they get pushed down the board as a result? Yeah, so on someone like Jackson Smith in Jigba, who, you know, you watch him and, like, the production's there and it's going back to 2021, obviously, a little bit here. And it, it's it's fun. It's it's explosive and you, and you see how it can translate. And I, I, I do wonder, though, like, the, the, to me, there's a difference between wide receiver one in a class and where you fit into the projection of the league. And I look at him and I say, okay, you might be wide receiver one now for this class, but how do you build an offense around it and where do you fit in the hierarchy of the wide receivers around the league? And and that's a problem I have watching him. Yeah, and, and you know, that's it, it, where he ends up going to the draft is going to be determined by, you know, the, the landing spot, the offense that the team running – you know, the team that drafts some runs because, you know, for some systems, like just hypothetically what we envision, you know, the Panthers at one, perhaps the Raiders at seven with Josh McDaniels, you know, more of a horizontal based passing game where slot receiver is a hyper productive role, you know, is a hyper productive part of that offense. You know, that's the kind of landing spot for him where it's going to be huge. It's going to be critical, you know, because of what the skill set he brings more, quick than fast, more production out of the slot, you know, taking advantage of that two-way go from that alignment on the field. That's an, those are the types of landing spots where he could certainly thrive. But if you're a team like, say, the New York Giants, and this is one of the tricky things with the Giants, most of their receivers right now are slot types. You know, they need that more pure, true X, or even a Z in a sense. You might struggle to find that. Maybe a Quentin Johnson sort of fits that role the best, or maybe a Jalen Hyatt, who in this draft class does one thing, the vertical route tree, but does it at an extreme level, you might just sort of say, look, 
We'll draft him to do that one thing. He can be sort of that Will Fuller type clone, and we can sort of make do around him. But that's, you know, we typically talk about landing spot and scheme fit a lot when it's quarterback discussion. I think it matters just as much, if not more, with this receiving class because of the skill sets, because of, you know, the bulk of them like JSN do their best work out of the slot. You have to have the right kind of offense. But then you look at, say, a team like the Raiders, they've got a lot of good slot receivers already. Jacoby Myers, Hunter Renfro, that might not be a need there. So that might take one landing spot for these types of players, including JSN, off the board. Actually, while we're talking about wide receivers, uh, a signing today, uh, Odell Beckham, or, or rather yesterday, Odell Beckham landing in Baltimore, and like there's, there's already photos of Lamar and, and OBJ chatting it up on FaceTime. So it feels like this kind of puts an end to the Lamar discourse. If he, Odell's choosing Baltimore, I'm assuming there's a conversation at some point of, hey, Lamar's going to be the QB, right? It does feel that way, right? Yeah. And there's reported out that Lamar was part of sort of the pitch mm-hmm. to Odell. He was part of the sort of recruitment plan, you know, to get Odell to Baltimore. Odell made this move, made this decision based on, I'm going to be catching passes from Lamar Jackson, right? It's not a question mark. You know, the understanding that he has is that Lamar is going to be the quarterback in Baltimore. And so I think it does sort of put an end to this idea that Lamar is going to be somewhere else. It, you know, I'm still confused by how this entire situation unfolded, if I'm being perfectly honest, because this is a Lamar Jackson, a former MVP, one of the more talented players at that position. I'm stunned in a sense that there was not more movement, that we didn't see a team, you know, whether it was one of the ones we thought might get in, such as Atlanta, whether it was a surprise team like, say, New England or Washington or another team sort of get themselves into the Lamar Jackson mix at some point, because we are talking about former MVP. We're talking about somebody that plays the position extremely well and fits with where the game is trending. So I'm still surprised that there's been no movement on that front, but that does combined with this Odell move make me think that, okay, they're going to find some sort of resolution to this. He's going to stay in Baltimore. Maybe the market was much more in line with what the Ravens were offering him, whatever that was. And now he's seen, okay, well, I guess they were right. Now they're starting to do right by me. They're Britton and Odell. They may still draft a receiver even as early as 23 in the first round to add to that receiver room to give him another weapon in the passing game. But the Odell move and everything that's come out since then makes me think that, okay, this is finally going to get done and Lamar is going to be a Raven next year and beyond. Is this a good move? That like That's the other component to this as well. Does he fit what we think this Todd Monken offense is going to look like in Baltimore with you know Rashad Bateman, he's wide receiver there, and you know the, the passing offense kind of does revolve around Mark Andrews. Is Odell at a spot right now where he's going to draw enough attention to kind of maximize what this offense could be? I, you know, that's a, that's a tougher question. You know, when he was healthy with the Rams, I thought he was perfect for what they needed because – you know, obviously, Cooper Cup was the main attraction there, and he's more of that sort of option two, option three in the passing game. I think, like you said, it's exactly right. Mark Andrews is kind of the focal point in that passing game because of what he does, because of the way he plays the tight end position. And really, if you start thinking about the Ravens for the next couple of years, Isaiah likely is going to be a big part of their passing game because you're talking about a player that was a wide receiver initially before making the move to tight end. He's more of that move type tight end, somebody that might play a lot in the slot. And then you look at, you know, uh, then an outside group of Beckham and Bateman. So you can still have that sort of 
12 personnel look to it with likely and Andrews, but those are two tight ends that are going to create some matchup problems more in the interior. Beckham then is going to have some opportunities with one-on-ones. There might be some situations where as a defense, you might want to rotate coverages towards him, which will create opportunities for everybody else. So it does look like this Ravens passing game is starting to take shape. I still think they add one more receiver in this draft, maybe early in the draft. But when Beckham is healthy, he could still not stress defenses vertically so much, but really sort of cause problems for them in the intermediate areas of the field. One of the ways the Rams love to use them was on that sort of backside dig, which in this too high world that we're living in, you know, that's such a critical component where you have your front side concept. And if you're really in sort of cover two, cover four, two deep safety looks, that backside dig is usually there as a sort of last resort for a quarterback. And that's a route he runs extremely well. And that could be a big part of their passing game going forward. Uh, let's get to the defensive side of the ball, uh, especially the cornerback class. This cornerback class, is it uh, high-end? Because I've heard plenty about the depth, right? It seems like there's a lot of bodies, and you know, the, with the league becoming passing, so focused on passing, at some point you're going to get this class that, that has a lot of depth. Is it high-end, or is it more about the depth in this class? I mean, I, honestly, Dick, I think it's both. I, I nice, think, yeah. You know, par- partly because of maybe some weaknesses at other positions. Sure. You might see as many as five, maybe six in the first round. Um, you know, and you might see a couple in the top 10. Uh, we'll record, we're doing this on Tuesday. You know, we just had the Detroit Lions, Jeff Okuda, a former third overall pick. They trade him to the Atlanta Falcons. I think that means that corner at six for Detroit is certainly in play. You know, depending on how things shake out at seven with the Raiders, corner could be a pick there. Even still, Atlanta at eight could go pick because Okuda, you're, you're hoping he turns it around, but you need somebody across from Major Terrell. You know, so I, I think there's an opportunity for a couple of corners to come off the board in the top ten. And then you start getting into the teams. You see, you know, a team like New England team at 14, corner could be a pick for them. You know, get a team like Washington at 16. That could be a place for a corner to come off the board. So I think you're going to see a lot of corners come off this board in the first round. But it's deep as well. You know, Mel Kiper Jr. talked, you know, recently about the cornerback group and said he's looking at it. You might see maybe 35, 40 that can play in the NFL. I mean, you start getting into that day two range. D.J. Turner from Michigan, who's somebody I like a lot. Clark Phillips, third from Utah. Probably more of a nickel slot type player, but somebody that I think could play at a really high level. Eli Ricks from Alabama. Riley Moss was kind of moving up boards from Iowa. It didn't stand out on film, but tested extremely well. And so it's very good at the top. I think we're going to see a number of players picked in the first round of the position, but I think it's extremely deep as well. All right, so let's start at the top. I, you know, I haven't watched uh, these guys as much as you have, but just from a initial impression is – it does feel like if if you're kind of giving grades to these guys, there's going to be some equal grades on a Christian Gonzalez or a Joey Porter or Jr. or a Devin Witherspoon, but the fit to whatever team might dictate who goes higher. I think so. I mean, I think Gonzalez is my favorite of the group. I think he's very scheme diverse. Um, he can certainly play press man, a lot of man in press alignment, and you know he's patient in press coverage and press technique. But he had some of his best plays and some of his most productive plays in zone. And so I think that gives him sort of an edge because Witherspoon, 
he looks just sort of he's a your press man coverage guy, mm-hmm. you know, and very feisty, very aggressive player. Um, you know, he, he sort of screams Detroit Lion. I think Dan Campbell will probably love him. Um, so that might be a good landing spot for him. It could make him the first corner taken. Mm-hmm. He's also somebody that when you watch him, Illinois used him very similar to how Bill Belichick used Stephon Gilmore during Gilmore's time with New England and the, with the Patriots because against Purdue, for example, when one of their best weapons, one of their best receivers was a tight end, that's who he was covering. You know, he was just – Illinois basically said, look, this is their best receiver. You're going to cover him. And they would just put him on an island with him. And so – you know, I, I think he's more of your man coverage guy. Just let him play man. But, you know, he he can certainly play zone, but it's not his strength. Porter stood out to me because of the, the strides he took this past season. You know, again, very patient and press. You can certainly let him play, you know, press man, but also scheme versatile, can play some zone stuff as well. Uh, those are the top three guys in my mind. I think they're, you know, scheme diverse to an extent. Gonzalez being the most scheme diverse of the three. But if you really want to play a lot of press man, you might have Witherspoon as a top corner on your board. And I want to touch on one other thing. It's the edge class here, and, and specifically uh, with Will Anderson Jr. Because usually when, when you're, you're rated as the number one edge player and we know you're going to go high, there's a lot of buzz. Like I'm thinking of Chase Young. Right? There was a lot of buzz, and Joe Burrow obviously makes a late push, and it's like, okay, he's going to go one, but we know Chase Young's going two. I feel like I don't know what the floor is for the draft spot for Will Anderson. And I, I'm a little surprised at how little you know, natural buzz there has been for this player who looks like a fun player, looks like the safest player you're going to find. Is, is, is he not the best non-quarterback in this class? I mean, I think the, the ground has shifted a little bit regarding Anderson, particularly as they get closer to the draft. And I don't know if that's the natural sort of life cycle as a draft prospect, because we're talking about somebody that in 21 had better numbers, more production than Aiden Hutchinson, who was a Heisman finalist that year. And obviously was drafted extremely early. And I think this past year, the numbers weren't quite as high. You know, they did some different things with them schematically. And I think, you know, ultimately, Will Anderson is a very good prospect. It's just that he was built up to be this sort of generational talent, and maybe he's not that, and he's being dinged as a result. And now you're seeing him, you know, and mock drafts are what they are. They're an imperfect data point, but you're seeing him slide. You're seeing, you know, maybe Jalen Carter goes before him. Maybe Tyree Wilson goes before him. You know, I, I think part of it might also be that he's not going to be out of the box, a fully refined, fully complete, you know, pass rusher. There are things that he can improve upon. He relies more on power and scheme right now. I think he needs to round out his toolkit as a pass rusher in Alabama, certainly this year, but really his entire time there did a lot, you know, with stunts and twists and got him some favorable matchups, which he took advantage of. And, you know, that's, that leads to production, but is it the best sort of, frame of reference for, okay, that's what's going to be replicated as a, an NFL pass rush from winning one-on-ones when a lot of it is schemed up. And so, you know, I, I think he's still a very good edge player. He's my favorite of the group, um, but that's just one person's opinion. And maybe he does slide. Maybe we see Jalen Carter go before him. Maybe we see Tyree Wilson go before him as a result because, you know, maybe he's not this complete package that he, we thought he was going to be you know, when we were starting, you know, out in the fall, we were taking a look at all of these players, and you're thinking, oh, well, he had this great 21 season. He's going to develop again and get a little bit better, and that's going to be this complete package. 
development isn't linear. Maybe it wasn't what we were expecting, but he's still a very good player. Hey, Mark, this is awesome. Uh, always appreciate the chats as we get closer to the NFL draft, uh, just days away. And uh, I, I have to throw in an F1 question because the listeners on the show will get mad. I just want to know because I know the next race is not for a while, right? That's right. We got Azerbaijan at the end of the month. We were supposed to have Chinese Grand Prix, uh, but that got canceled because of COVID issues. And so we've got this sort of extended break. And so it will be fascinating to see if teams are able to do anything developmentally. I know Mercedes, Ferrari, and some others have been, you know, McLaren as well. They've been saying, look, we're going to have some stuff for Azerbaijan. I want to see if that comes together in a couple of weeks. All right. So we'll get into the F1 stuff in a few weeks when we're closer to the next race. Uh, Mark, you're the best, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Vic. Always a blast. We'll talk soon. It's our guy, Mark Schofield, joining us here on The People's Show. All right, a couple of minutes left. Uh, we started this yesterday. New segment here on The People's Show. We're calling it Free Takes. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> you got a thought? Anything. About anything. Drop it into the inbox. 650. 650. Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Free take. If you're a slow walker, stand to the right of the sidewalk. If you're a slow walker in the mall, stand to the right. If you're a slow anything, stay to the right. Easy. Easy stuff. Unless you're in England or in Australia. And you know what, Tom? I'll tell you that for free. If you're a slow walker. I'll tell you that for free. If you're a slow walker, stay to the right. What do you got, Dom? You got a free take? Thank um, Mike, you're just unplugged accidentally. I'll tell you that for free. Um, the Orioles officially have the best home run selly of any team ever in the history of baseball. Uh, this season, after a player hits a dinger, they are treated to a beer bong once they enter the dugout. But it's a water bong. It's a water bong. Yeah. But in my imagination, they're <laughs> chugging a, a frosty cold one. <laughs> I love it. You just know some fan like in the first row behind the dugout is going to try to pour a beer over the top. It's going to happen at some point. Uh, this one, uh, West End Mike, Elias Pedersen should be a leading candidate for the Lady Bing Trophy this year. I'll tell you that for free, West End Mike. Uh, on that note, it just, we brought it up on Canucks Talk as well. It does seem like there should be room for either Pedersen or Hughes on NHL award noms this year. I think they'll get votes. I don't think they'll be, they'll be top three in anything. But if they were, I wouldn't be surprised. They've had outstanding seasons. I'd be surprised about Pedersen. For like a Selkie nom? Yeah. That's been good. It just feels like Bergeon's for sure. Like yeah. that's done. Yeah, so, sure. So there's only two spots. Yeah. I think his year's probably going to get a lot of love because they're going to the playoffs. I, I, and throw Pedersen in third. I, I'd, I'd like to see it. I think he's Telki caliber, but I just don't think he's going to end up at the award banquet. Uh, this one, as bad as Canucks have been, I'd rather be the Flames. I'd rather be them than the Flames at the moment. Tell you that for free. 650, 650. I was thinking about that coming into them. Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we've been comparing to the Canucks to a lot of these teams down the stretch here when we've seen them play. For going into next year, I'd rather be in the Canucks situation than a lot of teams across the league. At least. Probably comfortably at least 12 other teams. I'd rather yeah. have the Canucks in front of them. i talk about toxic environments. Uh, but speaking of the, the mess that's in Calgary, um, they'll get into it with Pat Steinberg on Canucks Central. How to clean up the carnage that's going on in Flames land. Irfan Gaffar will also join Sat and Dan. 
plus the pregame show television tonight, 6.30 pregame. A real roundtable starts the pregame roundtable with Batch and Randeep at 6 o'clock. But Satin Dan on the way. Home of Canucks, Sportsnet 650.